Just because if you isolate a protein and you look at its function, that tells you nothing about the hundreds, if not thousands of signals that are feeding into that system to, to sort of increase or decrease the amount that you might have of that protein or how much you have of the, the precursor or of the substrate. You know, all these things feed in. And so, you know, knowing a single genotype probably tells you, like, like I said, very little, if not nothing about how that system is working. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from Seattle is a Professor of Pediatrics, Tommy Wood. Welcome, Tommy. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Tommy, I saw your uh, talk on the Ancestral Health Symposium on YouTube recently, and you published a paper on um, gene testing, and it was a, a fascinating talk and paper. So we're here today to talk about uh, gene testing or the looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms and what they mean in clinical practice. So before we dive into that, perhaps just give us a bit of a background of who you are and how a professor of paediatrics is um, interested in SNP testing and functional medicine. Sure. So... Like you say, I'm a professor of uh, pediatrics. I mainly research uh, neonatal brain injury, so ways to teach uh, babies who have some kind of brain injury either around birth or because they were born prematurely. That's what I did as my PhD. Uh, before that, I trained as a, a medical doctor in the UK, worked in central London um, in a hospital there for a couple of years. Before that, I did an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. And so as well as my academic work throughout my training, I've been very interested in the things that are required for optimal health and performance, both from an athletic point of view, as well as from helping people overcome chronic disease. And for most of my PhD and then my postdoc period before I came a professor, I was working part-time in a company called Nourish Balance Thrive, which worked with um, elite athletes of various populations and, and then also some chronic disease populations. And I've you know, written various papers on things like uh, root cause analysis and uh, lifestyle and biochemical approaches to say multiple sclerosis. That's kind of one of the areas that I started in. I also still do some consulting with a company called Hintzer, which works with most of uh, the current crop of Formula One drivers. And again, we're sort of looking at uh, blood test results, various other uh, test results, performance parameters, and trying to optimize their diet and lifestyle because, you know, they're jetting all, all around the world, they're exposed to various things, and they have to perform week in, week out for you know several months at a time every year. So, I kind of have two two lives: one where I'm sort of focused mm -hmm. on uh, more the pediatrics research, but then another one where I spend time really looking at trying to figure out how people can uh, maximize their health and health and performance. And in reality, I like to think that I'm trying to find ways for people to live as long and healthy as possible across their entire lifespan. That's kind of, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's a rather grand goal, but that's what I'm trying to do. Beautiful. All right. So how did you, you know, um, looking at your paper, it looks like it took a lot of time and effort and calculations and maths. And um, yeah, what inspired you or motivated you to take time out to explore this idea of um, SNP testing in, in functional medicine? Sure. So one of the nice things about being an academic, basically, is that I can do whatever I find interesting. And if I get to write a paper out of it, then, you know, I've kind of job done. I'm, I'm sort of working in the academic fields. And that's essentially what I did here. And it kind of started a couple of years ago. I went to a functional medicine seminar um, and there was, a, there was a talk 
And one of the speakers there, or there were talks, and one of the speakers who was generally considered, you know, very well versed in the world of genetics and functional medicine in, in the US, um, they they were talking a little bit about about you know genetics and health and, and and how you might do certain things if you have certain SNPs. And at one point, they said something like, um, "I'm." I'm a low fat genotype and my partner's a, a low carb genotype or something like that. And I was, you know, for a second I sat there, I was like, do what, is that even a thing? Like, <laughs> do we, do we know that already? Cause if we do, like I'm way behind on the research. I didn't realize that we actually knew that. And so then over a couple of years, the more and more you work with people, particularly with the, the populations that I was working with and they're um, what we might call optimizers. So people who are really interested in data, uh, quantified self, um, elite athletes, particularly endurance athletes, you know, they, they want to look at their genes and figure out the best things, you know, how you might personalize approaches to those. And so that sort of made me think about it a bit more. And and then uh, I eventually put together this talk, which I showed at the Ancestral Health Symposium. And, and to kind of understand how these things work, I thought, you know, let's go back to basics in terms of, you know, what what statistics really mean and and as soon as you say statistics people's like eyes glaze over and and they're already you know ready to fall asleep mm-hmm. but in reality you can kind of deconstruct what look like very complex papers and you know most of the papers that i was looking at were in nature nature genetics these are huge studies of hundreds of thousands of people with research you know researchers at the top of the genetics field all over the world and what they're reporting is these average effects of a certain SNP in a certain um, group of people. And I think in the papers themselves, they're very you know honest overall about what the actual effect is. But then when people are trying to translate that to, say, creating a tool for nutrigenomics, so you put in your, your SNPs and they tell you, oh, you should eat this or do this based on your genes – they just basically read the abstract of the paper and all they're doing is working with the average effect. However, you know, so if you have this SNP, you have X percent increased risk of obesity or type 2 diabetes or, you know, X percent loss of MTHFR function. You know, that's a favorite one. And in reality, if you then, you can take the data that they present and you can sort of back calculate what the whole, um, what the whole population looked like. Um, and that's essentially what I did. So I created what I called synthetic data sets, but used a random number generator to create a normally distributed population that showed the same characteristics as the one that they were describing in the paper. And the reason I did that is because this data isn't easily accessible for people you know, to just play around with. But um, if the data is described the way they describe it in the paper, I can sort of back figure that out. So I, cr- so I created these data sets that simulated what that population they were looking at was like and what you see is this huge variability from person to person so for a given snip yes you might have a small percent increase in risk of obesity but if you then look at the overlap of the distributions like overlap of all the different weights that people can be with the different snips you might see that having one copy of a certain gene actually only increases any any only creates a, a difference in possible weight outcomes by like in like three percent of people. So ninety-seven percent of people with a given SNP, there would actually be no effect whatsoever. And so what's what's happening is that people look at these average effects, 
And what they don't talk about is the fact that the environment is by far the dominant effect in terms of your health outcomes. And they're therefore overestimating the, the likely effect that you will have in a given person. And I, I'm always reminded of um, a quote by Richard, Richard Feynman, not the physicist, but the biochemist. Um, he's in uh-huh. SUNY in New York. And he said, you know, he was looking at uh, a paper on weight loss. And what he said was, nobody loses an average amount of weight, just like nobody or very few people have the average effect of a given gene, right? That's just something that's created statistically to, to try and give you an idea of what happened overall, but it doesn't tell you about what will happen to you, the person who's looking at their own data. And that's what I tried to do by, by creating these data sets and deconstructing that process. Well, that sounds complex. Um, I'm not just... Take it. Take a step back. We, we probably jumped into the snippets straight away. Um, I'm sure most people know, but just quickly, can you describe uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms and what the sort of um, practitioners may infer from possessing one versus another of these uh, alleles? Yeah, of course. So, a single nucleotide polymorphism is just a change in a nucleotide in a gene. So, the nucleotides being uh, the DNA code, A's and C's and T's and G's. Um, and if you have uh, a, a polymorphism, so there's a change in one of those points somewhere in that code, that's what we call a single nucleotide polymorphism. And then because of that, um, you've changed the codon, which is the three um, the, the three nucleotides that make up, like tell you which amino acid to put in that protein, whatever it is you're trying to make. And then that might change the amino acid, and then that changes either the function or the conformation of the protein very slightly, and therefore you have a difference in function. So when people then look at these, and you know there are millions of, of potential SNPs, you can then look at them in a large group of people and say, and you can have up to two copies of a given polymorphism in a given position, and you can say, here are people with, with none of those, here are people with one of those, here are people with two, um, and then let's look at their phenotype, right? So obesity or, or BMI being being one of them. So if if you know here's people with zero, you know what is what's their average BMI? Here's people with one copy. What's their average BMI? Here's people with two copies. What's their average BMI? So that's then that then they're starting to think about how is a given allele that that SNP associated with a phenotype being say weight. Perfect, thank you. And so then you created like a synthetic or artificial data set of like essentially mock people, like a thousands of people, and um, looked at how they fell across a, the bell-shaped curve of these different SNPs versus disease risk. Exactly. Great. All right. Well, let's um, dive into some of the the, the SNPs you looked at. Um, and these are often either mostly studied or the, the ones I think practitioners often um, look at in reports. So uh, you looked at obesity, um, and probably the, the the best known one there is the FTO, the, the fat mass and obesity associated protein. Um, first of all, uh, I've looked into it a while ago, and do researchers even know um, have an idea of what FTO does and how it relates to weight? <laughs> no, no, not re- not really that well. Um, yeah. The interesting thing is, like when you um, when you look at the gene, you look at the protein, and you read up about it, they just tell you that it's associated with obesity and overweight, but they don't really know why. <laughs> okay, so I hadn't missed anything. Yeah, no. 
All right. Um, and what's a sort of the typical um, narrative either like in the literature or in functional medicine if one possesses um, FTO the, or the, the, the quote-unquote bad SNP, if you want to call it that, the, the, the less functioning one? Yeah. So, so there's, there's a, a specific one and you, so there's, there's a couple that they talk about in, in FTO, but there's one that's you know, thought to be the single SNP that's most associated or the common SNP that's most associated with obesity. And if you have one copy... And so in the talk, I use myself as an example. So I have one copy that's associated with a point, on average, a 0.3 increase in BMI. And then, you know, double that 0.6 if you have two copies. And like you think, oh, 0.3, that sounds like that's, you know, that's that's a reasonable amount. You know, that's interesting. If, if like for me, my BMI is uh, 28.9. I calculated, calculated it just now. So the difference... Um, for me, would be like if I had zero copies, then I'd be 28.6. That's basically a kilo for somebody who weighs 100 right. kilos. It's actually not that much. So the way that it's often portrayed in, um, particularly when people are talking about nutrigenomics and functional medicine, is they'll talk about the the relative risk increase in obesity because then you then it starts, starts to sound interesting. So if I have one copy, I have almost a 20% increased risk of obesity. That sounds like a lot, right? Um, so it's it's those relative risks on average that people start to use to say, oh yeah, no, this is something that you should pay attention to, even when in the grand scheme of things, it's not necessarily that much. Sure, um, and we'll come back to this through the rest of the conversation. But so the two areas that I find interesting with the the gene testing is firstly, like, are you at increased um, risk? But the other one, which um, is often touted, is with gene testing, you can personalize your mm. prescription. How do you, or can you, like knowing someone has a uh, FTO, how does it, would it change your prescription to, you know, it's not like you wouldn't recommend exercising for people without the F FTO, you know, um, quote unquote bad polymorphism. I'm still a bit stuck on how does it translate to personalization? Yeah. So there's one area where, where people have combined two very inexact sciences to try and come up with something that looks like a personalized recommendation. And that is your FTO genotype and how much saturated fat you eat. So people have combined nutritional epidemiology, which is you ask people what they eat, and then you look at their phenotype, um, which is so incredibly um, inaccurate that you're basically at a point where it doesn't really tell you anything. And then you've combined that with another thing, which is your uh, genetics, which is also so hugely variable, but they combine those two things and it's, they say uh, people who have the FTO uh, SNPs that are associated with obesity um, are more likely to be obese if they eat more saturated fat. Like, what does that even mean? You know, what, what, is, what does saturated fat come with in the Western world? You know, it usually comes with a side of, you know, deep fried fries and cheesecake and ice cream and you know mm. there are all these other things you know nuanced parts that that go into that um so that's what's currently recommended for people with an fto genotype but there's really no evidence um that that works so have they taken people who have fto snips and changed nothing but the amount of saturated fat in their diet to see whether they, they lose weight no they haven't so there's no evidence from like a direct interventional standpoint to show that, that makes a difference um, yes. And then the other one is exercise, like you mentioned. So there are a number of studies now that, set, that show that if you do just a small amount of exercise, so 
Uh, you know, if you have a job where you stand, that counts. That's enough. Um, or anything up to like an hour of moderate, you know, you, you go for a walk, maybe you go to the gym. Um, you know, right now I'm at my standing desk while I'm talking like this would be enough to counteract my, my, the, the effect of the FTO gene. Um, and, and then you see no difference. And we, you hit the nail on the head, really, which is that all of the things that people recommend for those with bad genotypes, I would recommend you do anyway, regardless of your genotype, if you're interested in being healthy and living a long time. So like, there was, another, there was a, another example that came up in my email the other day. It was the, the email was titled, Genes You Should Fix. Now, first of all, you can't fix your genes. They are what they are. And, and this gene was talking about SNPs in FOXO3, which is a transcription factor. It's associated with lots of things that we're interested in, like uh, cardiovascular disease, because of it's, so it, it regulates things like autophagy and cell death and um, cellular senescence, which is a big, a big uh, part of aging. People are really interested in that currently. And it, it um, showed, a, showed a paper, which we can dig it into if you want to. But basically, it was saying if you have you know, this, this SNP, in FOXO3, then you should spend more time uh, in the sauna, fasting and exercising because those are, those things are you know are going are gonna to boost your longevity. I would have told you that regardless of what your genotype was. Like, <laughs> we know those things are, are good for you, and that's like part of a you know a sort of a, a balanced approach to try and improve your health and longevity. And, and this is what you see again and again. Um, so your genes are what they are, um, and there's very common things that you'd recommend to pretty much anybody who's interested in maximizing their health and. It really doesn't matter what your genes are in the first place. Yeah. All right. We'll come back to that. Let's dive into the results then. So um, as you mentioned, one way of looking at the FTO might increase the relative risk, as you said, by 20%. But what did your um, research reveal when looking at the FTO and your data set? Yeah. So so what I could do once I have all these data points is I can basically plot um, a, what we call a linear a linear regression. So as you have like... In that, and then you have, so on the x-axis, you'd have the number of copies of the SNP you have. And then on the y-axis, you'd have the BMI. And then you just see like how much is your, your the number of alleles associated with your BMI. And uh, what I found was, so in, in the talk, um, it was 0.2% uh, of BMI, which is basically nothing. It was very slightly higher. In the paper, I redid it with a slightly better random number generator, and I came up with 0.4%. So it's still like less than 1% of your BMI, or less than half of 1% of your BMI, is determined wow. by uh, your FTO genotype. And this is the SNP that is most associated with um, being overweight or obese. Um, so, I mean, it's essentially, it's essentially useless. Right. And likewise, um, extending it to several more SNPs, I think you combined that to look at eight SNPs in, gen in total? Yeah. So this this was, again, this is a, a very highly cited, very well done study published in Nature, Nature Genetics where they combined eight SNPs or the eight common SNPs most associated with obesity. And again, they sort of created a genetic score and they showed that BMI on average goes up line linearly as your genetic risk score goes up. But then when you sort of plot all this out and you create a synthetic uh, data set for, for each genetic risk score. And you do the same thing. You do a linear regression. It shows that all of the genes that are most associated with being overweight um, uh, determine about 2% of your, of your BMI, which again, it's, it's uh, did you go to the bathroom before you, before you weighed yourself? <laughs> it's, it's, it's that kind of percentage level. Um, and what's really interesting is that if you look at when they applied these or tested these 
genetic risk scores in a population. So the population that that they used was the uh, it was the Epic cohort in Norfolk in the UK, I believe. And what you see is that even in the people with the lowest genetic risk score, more than fifty percent are overweight. So you're, yeah. you're comparing yourself to a population that's already has a significant amount of people who are obese and, and, and overweight, regardless of their genetics. So then, yes, in that environment, perhaps you know your genetic risk score increases your risk of obesity slightly, and it does statistically. But if you're somebody who's not putting yourself in an environment that's going to make yourself overweight or obese, i.e., you've taken you've taken steps to not just be part of the standard Western uh, food environment. You're moving regularly. You're sleeping regularly. All of a sudden, like these these genes don't really mean anything anymore in terms of in terms of their risk. Okay, well, let's move on then to diabetes. I suspect it's going to be a similar narrative, but, um, but I think it's important to, to flesh out. So um, similarly, in there's SNPs linked to, to diabetes. So can you give a bit of a background and context of what's, you know, being reported in literature and then what you found yeah so 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 again in in the in the paper i didn't have time to cover it in as much depth in in the talk but in the paper i talk about a snip in in the melatonin receptor 1b mtnr 1b uh, which is again probably the snip that's most associated with elevated fasting blood sugar Um, and when when you look at my my genotype again i have a single i have a single copy i have a 67 percent increased risk of type 2 diabetes like that sounds like a lot um yeah you know i you know should i be worried about that um and in reality um again you you end up seeing something you end up seeing something very similar so you have a, your your number of copies of the mtn r1b snip you have contributes about one percent of your fasting blood sugar. Um, and when you then translate that up, so they did uh, in, in the paper I cited, they did something very similar. They ended up with uh, a genetic risk score. And I believe it was it was 16 SNPs this time associated with type 2 diabetes and fasting blood glucose. And your genetic risk score um, determined about 5% of your fasting blood glucose. And, and I think I made the point in um, in the talk is that if you're using a handheld blood glucose monitor to monitor your, your say your fasting blood sugar or your postprandial blood sugar, the the error in those machines is more than five percent. So All you're right. actually going to have greater error from the measurement you're taking than than you have uh, from your genetics. Um, and and so again, yes, statistically these things are associated with increased you know fasting blood glucose and type 2 diabetes but almost all of it is driven by the environment and i gave the example of hunter-gatherer populations who on on average have fasting blood sugar in the um in the sort of mid 60s to to mid 70s and then we're gonna have to quickly convert that to millimolar so yeah you know, that's sort of so like high 3.7 yeah, high threes low fours um in, in, t- in terms of millimolar and their risk of a pre-diabetic um, uh, fasting blood sugar level, so above five, um, is almost non-existent. It's like a, a couple of percent. Whereas in the Framium cohort, which is what this paper used, you had um, you, you basically had more at least fifty percent of people were in this pre-diabetic blood sugar level, 
range. So all of that is driven by the environment because we know that hunter-gatherers don't have super glucose regulation genes, right? As soon as you put them in in a, in a Western environment, they become diabetic very quickly. Um, and so the, the, the example that I used in the end with the Bolivian semen A, who have overall a 0% risk of type 2 diabetes in their population. Mm-hmm. And so 67% increase on 0% is still 0%, right? So almost all of, almost <laughs> yeah. all of your risk is driven by the environment and your genetics, again, they, they sort of may reflect slightly and, and worsen, you know, based on how your genes interact with the environment. But if you change the environment, then again, your genes hardly matter at all. And um, back to this sort of personalization thing, I don't suspect that all these, you know, traditional cultures and hunter and gatherers um, have individualized diets like Hud's a gentleman number A eats, you know, 30% honey and the other guy eats 20, 20% zebra. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, they, they just have a, a whole food diet. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and of course, you could say that, you know, that they're still very closely adapted to the to the diet that they've been exposed to for you know, generations, decades, you know, centuries, millennia. Um, but equally, you could say something very similar for for the for the majority of us, which is that you could look back, you know, you just think back like 100, 200 years, what were your ancestors probably eating? And it wasn't pizza and ice cream. You know, I, I'm yeah. mostly of Northern European and Scandinavian heritage. And I'll tell you what, it, particularly in the winter, there aren't really any carbs in Iceland. Like, you can have a few berries occasionally in, in in the summer and the autumn, but other than that, you know, it was usually uh, seafood and animal products, and you know, probably find something you know something non-starchy and 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 vegetable based that you could eat. But that but that was it. And so you can probably think of diets that are similar to what your ancestors were exposed to, and it's probably very different from what you're eating. And if if you change that, then again, I, I don't think most of the worry in terms of your risk of type diabetes, most of that's going to go away. Yeah, sure. Um, I might just quickly mention, just to add to this um, personalization discussion, I saw um, around Segal, who's from the, the Wiseman Institute. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen his work on the all those algorithms. With the, anyway, he was at an obesity conference recently here in Australia and he was just presenting his preliminary findings of his latest study looking at his um, algorithm-based um, personalised diet versus a Mediterranean diet for pre-diabetics and um, hopefully it'll be published soon. But the, the early mail is that the, the personalised diet was superior to the Mediterranean diet in lowering blood glucose. Um so that's encouraging, but that I think the most most of the personalization is derived from the microbiome. I know they did look at genetics, or they do. They do anthropometrics and everything else. They do a lot of um, input, a lot of data. But as I understand, a lot of the um, personalization, as I said, comes from the the um, subjects' microbiome composition and function. So maybe you know that could be an, an area in the future. I know they've got the day two. Um, program over in the United States where you can actually apply this. But I still wonder, like, you know, how well does it work compared to just a, everyone eating a, you know, a whole food diet? Because, a, you know, some people's good diet includes pizza and ice cream. And um, yeah, I wonder about the long term. But oh, the other thing I wanted to point out was that they 
claimed that the benefits in the glucose control was irrespective of um, weight loss. I thought it might have been because they lost more weight in the diet, but it seems that's that's not the case. Do you have any thoughts on you know where we're heading with that sort of personalization with like the microbiome and um, these yeah, algorithms? Yeah, I think um, Aaron Segal and his uh, collaborators are probably the closest in terms of actually getting something useful out of general gut microbiota sequencing um, in terms of diet. There are a lot of people pretending to do it, but I think they're probably the closest. They have, they have a large data set. They've trained algorithms and tested them. They've published it, which most other people haven't done. Um, one thing that I thought about with, with respect to that particular trial was they're in pre-diabetics and the comparison is a low mm. fat Mediterranean diet. And so we we're fairly certain that the easiest way to improve improve blood sugar control in people who have you know pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes is to restrict carbohydrate intake. Um, so yeah. their comparison group was a very high, or I, I don't know the exact pr- pr- proportions, but if it was low fat, then it was a high carbohydrate diet. And if you're going to eat a high carbohydrate diet, then taking an approach like theirs, which essentially you know their first studies they they gave people a wide range of foods and then tracked and they had continuous blood glucose monitors and they tracked their blood sugar response to this wide range of foods and then had people only eat the foods that didn't cause large spikes in blood sugar which was very different from person to person which was super interesting that was the first time Mm. that that was the first time that was shown so if you're going to eat a high carbohydrate diet you know definitely eat the foods that cause the smallest you know spikes in blood sugar and they're able to now you know predict that to a certain extent so yes i'm I'm absolutely not surprised that that they that they found that just because of what the comparison group were, were were probably eating yeah, um, and probably the other piece with the um, the environment, like the hunter gatherers, I, I think activity, particularly, uh, I think the data shows you know exercise is not terrific for for fat loss overall, but um, certainly as an insulin sensitizer, um, it's got a lot of power there. So um, as good as the diet is, I think obviously the the whole package of um, and then yeah, we can talk about sleep and everything else on top of that um, is really critical for yeah, blood glucose yeah. control. Um, all right, we'll save the, the most contentious for last, the methylation. But um, briefly, you also looked at um, uh, COMPT catecholamine methyltransferase, which is the enzyme that um, breaks down um, catecholamines like dopamine um, and estrogens. So that's linked. There's a bit of a narrative around brain function. You want to, would you be able to tell us about yeah, that, sure. please? So, yes, uh, COMT. Um, there's this, this a certain SNP that that causes a, um, a a change in amino acid, which caught which then supposedly changes the function of, of this enzyme. And if you have high um, high enzyme function, then you break down dopamine more quickly. That's the narrative. You have less dopamine in your brain, particularly your prefrontal cortex. So that's like me. Um, I am I have two copies. Apparently, I have a very fast COMT. So that so I'm a I'm a warrior. Uh, compared to warriors, um, if you don't have any copies, and so I'm supposedly have a lower IQ, I have lower executive function uh, because I have less dopamine, you know, hanging around in my brain because I break it down really quickly. Um, and what's interesting is that it, in certain studies, again, you might see on average that people with my genotype perform slightly worse in certain executive function tests. Um, but it's about like a third of people end up end up doing worse. So again, on average, 
you know, you could be somebody who does even better than somebody who doesn't have your the the bad genotype. And I'm doing big air, air quotation marks. So again, the data is hugely variable. Um, and the average effect, you know, if you're thinking about things that affect cognitive function, it's all that other stuff that you were just talking about in terms of sleep and stress and all, the, all these other things. Um, and, and when I actually dug into this data, what I found really interesting was that the original paper that talks about the speed of the function of, of the enzyme in people with certain genotypes, they took post-mortem brain samples. So they basically they took uh, brain tissue from dead people, and then they measured, they extracted the enzyme, and then they measured how fast it worked in a test tube. They didn't give the error bars, or they didn't say what the error bars were in the paper. So... Like for, for people who, who haven't read a lot of papers or don't understand what that means, they're basically, they haven't told you anything about how variable the data is. They've just said, this is the average right. effect. And so when I tried to back calculate the whole range of, of um, different of enzyme function from the data that they presented, basically, I, I, I came up with a result that was physically impossible. So from, so they've, they've incorrectly described um, a set of data that's probably very uh, variable. It has to be variable. You, like these people were dead for varying lengths of time. Brain tissue breaks down really quickly. You, you know, unless you've immediately frozen the sample, basically as soon as this person dies, you're going to start seeing loss of function. You know, the the, the technical aspects of trying to get this data um, are really tricky. Um, and then because of that, this data was basically so variable that I have no idea how 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 well my COMT gene works based on and this is the paper that that people cite but they don't you know they don't even know what the data set was in the first place um so i found that i found that really interesting right. um and then again to sort of like talk about it's important to talk about what a gene actually does so people think about you have this enzyme it breaks down dopamine therefore if the enzyme works faster you have less dopamine but in reality right you've got to make dopamine which requires tyrosine as an amino acid. It requires loads of cofactors like B6 and copper and vitamin C. Um, and then like for the enzyme to work, you need S-adenosyl methionine, right? So you need your methylation cycle to be working. So again, that requires methyl groups. That requires that whole part to be working. That's largely driven by the environment. The precursors required to make dopamine are, are driven by the environment. And then like you make dopamine and it creates a dopamine signal and then that dopamine signal feeds back to transcription factors to say, hey, we need more or less of this enzyme. Mm. Um, and then you have things like, you know, circadian rhythm and, you know, the light and dark cycle. And that affects, you know, hundreds of genes in the body, including when you're making how much dopamine. So all of these things feed in. Um, and so just measuring the single function of a, of, a, of a single enzyme tells you pretty much nothing about how much dopamine you have hanging around in your brain. So that, that's, 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 I think that's the main um, takeaway that I'd like people to have about genes is that just because if you isolate a protein and you look at its function, that tells you nothing about the hundreds, if not thousands of signals that are feeding into that system to, to sort of increase or decrease the amount that you might have of that protein or how much you have of the, the precursor or of the substrate, you know, all these things feed in. And so, you know, uh, knowing a single genotype probably tells you, like, like I said, very little, if not nothing about how that system is working. Beautiful. <laughs> well said. Thank you. All right. Um, so let's, yeah, as a bit of a segue, we need methylation to, to interact with COMT. So, 
as I said before we started recording, um, methylation is a, a hot topic in Australia and I think the US as well. Um, and most of it is centered around this MTHFR um, gene. And again, that, that in, um, yeah, I suppose in vitro, the, the quote unquote, the bad allele only works at what 30 or 50% of um, the, the wild type. So, um, yeah, tell me what you looked at with MTHFR and what your takeaway take is from your um, yeah, research. So, um, similarly, MTHFR, uh, a very big uh, deal or topic in, in functional medicine circles in, in the US and in the UK. And what's what's quite nice about it is that there are, there are two common SNPs um, of which you can have one or two copies and in they come in various combinations and so the the wild type which is present in about 15 percent of people um that where they have you know perfect mthfr function um then you can get sort of decreasing amounts of function as you have different numbers of the, of the two of the two other snips so i have one copy of each SNP in you know in each position. So I have supposedly 52% loss of my MTHFR function. Like that's a lot. Like more than 50% of my yeah. of my MTHFR function is lost. Um and so immediately this brings up this this narrative about my MTHFR function my MTHFR not working. And this is what you hear from all the time, even from people who are really smart and understand this stuff. They say, oh you should do this if your MTHFR isn't working properly. Well hang on a second. 85% of people have an MTHFR that doesn't work properly. So is is like how can everybody be broken? That just doesn't like just to start with that doesn't make sense to me. But then if you look at if you look at MTHFR function and something like homocysteine, so homocysteine being sort of an overall marker of that of that system um uh, and obviously it's not a marker of pure MTHFR function, but it it can tell you in, about things like nutrient requirements, uh, choline, methylated B vitamins, you know, how that whole system is working. And when you look at, like, across the whole, you know, uh, sort of gamut of loss of MTHFR function, loss in inverted commas, you get, that explains about 1% of your homocysteine. And so, you know, if, if that's if that's a reasonable, wow. you know, general marker of, of, how the, of how the system is, of how the system is working, Base, your MTHFR function, unless you're one specific genotype, which is the 677TT, which has more than a 70% loss of function, and they're kind of they're a special group. Um, that their data aren't normally distributed. They're very um, they're very variable. Um, unless you're one of those guys, basically your MTHFR function doesn't tell you anything about your homocysteine. Um, and what's interesting is that even if you are somebody the 677TT where you have a, a large loss of, of MTHFR function, almost all of that seems to be driven by nutrient deficiencies. So um, it's often you, yeah. you'll see high, very high homocysteine in these guys when they have you know either low B12 or low folate or low riboflavin particularly. Um, and and yeah, you know maybe uh, these guys you know you give them a bit of extra choline. Um, that, that that's an option too but um I, you know i was thinking as i was writing this writing this uh talk i was like well hang on. so is there like one group of people where i need to worry about mthfr and in reality you, you really don't because regardless of your genotype what should you do you should measure measure your homocysteine level you should measure your levels of um uh, active b12 so can you can you get holotranscobalamin in in Australia? You can't you can't get it in the US. Yeah. Okay. So you guys, yeah. great. You can get active B12. You can get 
um, some good measures of folate, um, and then maybe just take a couple of milligrams of B, of, of B2 riboflavin, and that's it, right? You're done. You don't even you don't even need to know your genetics. Yeah. So, so it as ever as sort of the sort of the storyline that continues hopefully throughout um, uh, this this uh, whole conversation is that. There are standard things that you're going to do in people to recommend, you know, whatever it is that's going to support long-term health. Um, and most of them just come from, you know, changing the environment and then, you know, measuring phenotype, measuring homocysteine, maybe, you know, measuring folate or B12 levels. Um, and, and that's all you need to do. And, and really the genetics component is, is so small. It's, you know, sing, you know, single digit percentage points that you, you're going to get almost all of the benefit by by doing things that, you know, are the same regardless of what your genotype is. Great. Um, just on the on, um, folate um, administration, there is some discussion about one folate could be superior to the other, particularly with the um, TT genotype. Uh, have you looked at or have any views on like using the, the quote unquote the active folate, the five MTHF versus folinic acid or versus the old school folic acid? Does that make any difference? Um, potentially, yes. I I think if you start by having somebody eat eating a diet that's that's rich in sources of folate, so um, leafy greens and liver, I don't think you're going to get to a point where you need to worry about this. Um, yeah, but yeah, okay. You, you you know you can dig even deeper and you know if um if you have uh low yeah if you're if you have low mthfr function so say yeah six seven seven tt um and you're, you're seeing low circulating levels of folate then maybe you know a methylated folate is going to be better probably going to be you know going to be definitely going to be better than than standard folic acid um if you're somebody who's into organic acids tests and you're seeing like an imbalance of uracil versus thymine in 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 on on the organic acids test and that might suggest that it's it's um issues with uh, dna production um or management therefore you might take yeah, folinic right. acid rather than, than um rather than methylated folate however i do think that there's far too much uh tassiography uh which is reading of the tea leaves um, when it comes to this stuff. Um, <laughs> and so in reality, if you eat a folate-rich diet, I don't think you're going to need to worry about it. And if you still have elevated homocysteine or something else, my guess is that you're probably better off looking at other environmental factors that can drive high homocysteine you know, associated uh, with stress or maybe there's a, a toxic exposure or, or something like that. Um, before you start worrying about exact, you know, microgram amounts of how much, you know, different folate you're taking. Great. Thank you. All right. Um, so we might move on to, um, so that the, the, the gene or the, the sets of genes you looked at in your paper and your talk. Um, and you also mentioned um, looking at some of the, the research on applying some of these genes to personalization. Um, there's the diet fit study and the, the food for me. Um, there's not a whole um, wealth of information or, you know, large amounts of um, studies, but what can we learn or what, what has been shown from those studies where they have like um, compared genotypes to different diet, diet subscribed to like that personalization? Is there a, yes, an effect so there? Yes, the, so the diet fits is one that I talked about directly because it, it's probably the closest that we have to answering 
um you know do people have you know respond better to um a, a low fat or a, or a low carb diet um and this is this is a study where they they basically split people into low fat and low carb groups and the most important thing that they did in my mind was they improved diet quality dramatically um and then people you know they restricted carbohydrate and fat and then over time they were allowed to increase the amount until they got to a point that was personally sustainable, either of fat or carbohydrate, depending on which arm they were in. And what they saw, they then went back and looked at people's genetics, and they saw that if you had some genes that were you know, associated with you know, maybe responding better to a low-fat diet or some genes, but maybe responding better to a low-carbohydrate diet, they basically saw that regardless of genotype, everybody lost the same amount of weight. And regardless of diet, everybody lost the same amount of weight. So improving diet quality and finding something that was sustainable for you was almost, you know, was the vast majority of, of where the benefit was seen. Um, and then when uh, the, the food for me, which is um, the various different studies as part of the same, um, uh, I guess it's part of the same sort of group of studies, mainly in Europe, I believe. Um, they looked at people's genetics. So uh, there was FTO, there was MTHFR, there was APOE. Um, and then they they gave people recommendations based on their genetics. And what you basically saw was that people didn't do what they were told um, because they didn't care. Um, you know, being told their genetics wasn't enough for them to make, um, you know, make the, the right. change that was that was recommended. Um, so, you know, again, that, you know, you could say, well, then, you know, if everybody had done exactly what they were told, maybe you would have seen a difference. And that's and that's true. But in reality, as a practitioner, um, if you're trying to personalize an approach to somebody, it doesn't really matter what you suggest if they don't do it. So, so I, I think you know, making sure that you're focusing on the things that we're fit, we're very certain will will have an effect, and then doing everything you can to support that behavior change. That's much more important than than you know, looking at hundreds of different SNPs and creating this really complex nutrigenomics based plan that the person isn't probably going to do in the first place. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, um, I would mind looking at then like adherence and compliance, like let's say perhaps that the gene testing doesn't, you know, really tell us much about risk nor help personalize. But I, I think some practitioners do like it because it helps them tell a narrative about you've got this gene, therefore um, you should be doing, you know, this over that. Or um, So what's the research show on like, you know, um, counseling someone's genetics about um, this seems like there could be a nocebo effect or a placebo effect on someone knowing their genotype. Does that um, change behavioral motivation yeah, or response? There was a meta-analysis done a couple of years ago looking at this, and they basically found found that same thing, which is that counseling people to do a certain thing based on their genetics doesn't increase adherence to doing that thing. Um, and, you know, when when you start to talk about this stuff, you, you hear from practitioners, um, oh, but I use this and it, and it definitely helps. And that's certainly possible um, because the kind of people who will seek out uh, a functional medicine practitioner, particularly if they're in that kind of optimizer kind of person, you know, I'll do whatever it takes kind of person. Um, they're, you know, they're highly yeah. committed. They're highly motivated. Um, they're slightly narcissistic. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in terms of the uh, the big five ocean personality description kind of way. Um, and, and they're very likely to do those things. So for that person, um, I mean, I, I still don't think you know, based on their genetics, whether they should be doing a certain thing. Uh, but but they may well respond well to um, 
to being shown their genetics and then being having it associated with a certain thing that they should change. Similarly, with with test results, you can say, "Here's your test result. It shows that this is high, this is low. You should do this." And they're like, "Great, I'll go away and do it." And then I want to retest and see whether it worked. That's a very specific type of person, and they may respond well to that. But in general, on you know, for for most people, that's that's not going to be the case. Okay, and there was um, you mentioned in the in your um, YouTube talk about the sort of almost the the point in the bone, like the the nocebo effect you can induce by um, discussing or maybe dwelling on these sort of yeah. you know poor genotypes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so this is a really interesting study where they looked at um, they looked at genetics uh, for a SNP associated with endurance capacity, um, and they had people um, they had people do a, an endurance test um they ran on a treadmill and then they tested their genetics and then they told them that they had either the bad gene or the good gene but they did it at random um like regardless of what the actual genotype was and what they showed was that people who were told they had a bad gene you know again in inverted commas they got worse the next time they did the endurance test regardless of what their actual genotype was wow um and if they were told they had the good gene they st- they they stayed about the same so this, you know, really typifies what we see uh, in terms of how people talk about genetics. So the wild type, we call it, um, you know, which is the, the best possible function. That's just like, that's normal, even if that's actually quite rare. And then everything else is worse or bad or not working. Um, and so it, we see that with MTHFR or, or FTO. So like, this is the one they're associated with obesity or here your MTHFR isn't working, even if the majority of people have a version of MTHFR which isn't working properly. So the normal is, you know, some risk of obesity, some loss of MTHFR function, um, but we immediately make it bad even though that's what most people have. Um, and, and you can see that in terms of, you know, how that affects physiology. So if you're told it's to do with your athletic performance, it will get worse if you're told that you have the bad genes, but it won't get better if you're told you have the good genes. Um, and, you know, every time people talk about genetics, they either talk about it as, you know, normal or bad. You know, it's never good. So so you're automatically primed for a nocebo effect and, and, and you never get that beneficial placebo effect. Okay. All right. So um, I know I've been a little bit critical of the, um, using the test, but... Obviously, practitioners are using it. Um, so, any sort of just you know closing remarks before we move on to um, like you know, metabolomics, perhaps just briefly. But if we if practitioners are using, so there is a bit of a cautionary advice about the, the language they use, or any sort of take home messages yeah, so, about so on these tests. I think you know I can't stand here and say no snip that you measure is important, right? Because I haven't done this like extensive statistical analysis for every possible SNP. So, right, I'm I'm definitely not saying that. In the paper, which hope, you know, which isn't published, but I put a preprint up so people can access it. If if you're using these regularly, I uh, and and there are certain papers for certain genes that you think, you know, inform what you should tell a patient. You can go through and do these analyses step by step. Actually, you know, once you've figured out how to do it and it's described in the paper, you know, it's, it's actually very quick. And then you can help either reassure yourself or tell yourself, or, you know, reassure yourself that it's important or tell yourself, oh, actually, you know, this particular SNP, the variability is so huge, there's probably no point in, re- in really worrying about it. Um, so just 
and like just think about what it is that you're applying and in the same um in the same way really think about the population in the paper that that you think says this snip is important um and, and the person in front of you so uh one really good example is um fto so we talked about that and fto isn't associated with increased weight in people who are african-american but is in people who are caucasian so you know what's the ethnicity of the person in front of you um similarly that foxo3 gene i talked about earlier that foxo3 snip the good one that supposedly lets you live longer you know more than 90 percent of african-americans in the u.s that they in this one study they looked at had this good snip but African-Americans die on average at, in, at a younger age in the U.S. compared to Caucasians, yet they have the, yet more of them have this, this SNP. So like, what is, what is the population that's been studied? How is that relevant to the person in front of you? How is that relevant to the environment that they're in? You have to take all of these things into account. And then, you know, if that still, you know, you have a paper, it perfectly describes the person in front of you and you have some idea of how to intervene. I have no problem, right? There's no problem with doing it. That, that's great that you're sort of, you're evidence-based, you're right at the cutting edge, that, that, that's great. Um, so it's just, you know, using a bit more of a, of, of a thought process before you start implementing these things. Um, and, and it's worth bearing in mind that I do occasionally use genetics with, with some of my uh, coaching clients, but... These are again that kind of person who's you know willing to you know leave no stone unturned, and by the time we get and we've done yeah. everything else, and there's still some there's, there's still some say blood test that, that the person's concerned about or something else the person's concerned about, and then you can start using the the, the SNPs for hypothesis generation, and then you can say oh yeah well this makes us think of this thing that we haven't tried yet. The problem is that if they implement that thing. Whether it does or doesn't work, we have no idea whether it was the SNP that did that, right? So it becomes part, and you, I'm just, yeah. I'm always very honest. I'm with with clients. I'll say, I honestly don't know at this point, but you know, here's a hypothesis. Let's try it out and, and see what happens. So, so I kind of use it at that stage, you know, towards the very end, once once everything else has been done, and you and you still want to try and tweak things, and then just be honest about how likely it is that the the gene. Is, is having the effect you think it is. I mean, you just, you just don't know, but it can maybe give you, you know, an idea of, of something else to try when nothing else has worked. Um, and w when, I, when I hear people talk about their use of, of SNPs, they say, I use it as a place to start. I think that's absolutely wrong. I think we know the place to start. We know all the things in diet and lifestyle that are going to be important for everybody. And then you can use it at the end, but I would not use it as a place to start. Yeah, great. That was going to be my my last um, two point question. So, um, so do, when doing when we back to sort of like treating an individual and doing like a workup, so they've got a health complaint, I want to optimize something. Um, do you feel there's areas maybe practitioners are overlooking and before and then they're leaping to the the, the gene testing? Any sort of like the phenotype or the metabolome? Um, any broad sort of views on? Yeah, areas to be uh, more I'm, mindful of. I'm, a, I'm a really big fan of just like a really basic blood test um and i think the reason why they're not used as much um there's partly that you know the newest and the fanciest tests always get um you know they're sort of they're sold to us and, and we sort of we want to be at the cutting edge and we don't want to get left behind so we so we go and do those things and i, I mean over the years i've I'd like to think I've tried most things and some I use for a long period of time and then I realized they weren't really that useful and I stopped using them. But a basic blood test, you know, 
a full blood count with differential uh, liver function, kidney function, maybe some basic lipids, um, some basic nutrient status stuff. Um, there's a huge amount that you can get out of that. But it, again, un unfortunately or fortunately, it requires a little bit more thinking beyond the standard reference ranges. Um, and, and as with everything, um, yeah. the standard reference range is just the... The, you know the the range that covers the middle 95 percent of the population and in general again so i'm based in the u.s more than 80 percent of people in the u.s have um some degree of metabolic dysfunction and more than 50 percent have at least one chronic disease or are taking one medication for a chronic disease so the average person is sick um so when you're then using that normal range to compare to somebody else who's maybe not as sick or is trying to achieve something else you don't really have that same utility. So there's, you can do the same process. You can go into the published literature. You know, here, here's a test like uh, something like RDW, the the red cell distribution width, um, is a really great marker oh, yeah. of, of of or predictor of longevity. Um, and you know, you probably want it under thirteen percent, uh, but that's right in the middle of the normal range. Uh, but as it starts to increase, like every half a percent, it goes up from there. You see mortality just like take off. So then. Unfortunately, it doesn't give you the, the straight answer because it could be increased because of a nutrient deficiency. It could be because of uh, inflammation, you know. But but those things, there's a lot you can read into them, um, and sort of and sort of just thinking about how those common markers are associated with um, long term health, um, particularly putting it in the context of the person in front of you. So liver function tests in somebody of South Asian um, descent, you know, as ALT and AST start to go up, you know, that's really not associated with good, good outcomes but in caucasians actually you know there's much less of an association between liver function tests and long-term and, and long-term health risks so you know putting all that stuff into context yeah, right. can give you a huge amount of information for, for the, the person in front of you um it just requires a little bit of a detective work sure and finally um so when it comes to interventions and prescriptions perhaps before we get to like stuck in the weeds and the minutiae about, you know, macronutrient composition, et cetera. Are there areas you feel maybe people are overlooking again outside of this personalization, these sort of overarching things, whether it's sleep or circadian rhythm or movement? Um, yeah, I think that, that definitely um, that definitely comes into play. And, and for, the, for the, the person in front of you, um, you know, the individual patient it's probably going to be very different um a, a real attention to sleep and circadian rhythm is you know people doing that properly is quite uncommon because if you think about um you know actually going outside getting exposed to light in the morning you know making sure you're not exposed to artificial light or bright light at night you know that's it's, it's difficult um but when you do it properly and then maybe you time your meals with that you know it can have huge benefits that but you know, just getting people to work that into their lifestyle, you know, becomes tricky. Um, so I think what what tends to happen is you, you go into the weeds of a genetic test or, a, you know, a, a fancy um, uh, urine test or, you know, hormone test or whatever. And, and I think um, practitioners do that. And I've done that myself. This isn't definitely isn't a blame game, right? All these mistakes I've, I've made myself. So, it's, you know, I've been there. Mm. Yeah. Um, and Likewise, and it, it's yeah. because the person in front of you isn't doing the thing that you think that they should, that you're fairly confident they should be doing. So you're, you're then trying to find other ways to, to get them to do that. And so I think better support in terms of uh, behavior change is going to be a, you know, a much bigger or much lower hanging fruit than the, the next test or the next um, you know, the, 
that sort of next fancy fancy thing getting people to do the basics and in reality if they tell you they're doing the basics they i mean and but you still see all these things that aren't quite fitting together they're, they're probably they're probably not doing it so then you know and there's loads of great you know you can recommend loads of great books to to people um atomic habits by james clear um you know depending on what the pro you know could be um mindset by carol dweck if if, if people aren't approaching things with the right mindset um that you know there's loads of great um resources out there that people can use but you know focusing on behavior change is probably going to be you know the biggest winner rather than focusing on some of these you know genetics yeah, agree. And I speak as well, also from personal experience, trying to trying to yeah get into the minutia, not overlooking the obvious. Or you know, we're probably less aware of yeah, things like yeah, circadian rhythm five or ten years ago. Um, Tommy, it's been great to speak to you. Um, I really appreciate. It. I think that that combination of playing in this space of people trying to optimize their health or functional medicine, in addition to having the, the you know the knowledge and the, the skill set to be able to to crunch the numbers of the research, it's been really refreshing to to hear so yeah i really appreciate your time um yeah before you sign off anything where can we learn more about you any sort of social media yeah, links or um, websites uh, i'm at uh, dr tommy wood on instagram um on twitter well, i don't tweet much but sometimes I'll, I'll jump on there and interact it's at dr ragnar that's r-a-g-n-a-r which is my middle name um and my website is the same uh dr uh and yeah instagram is probably where i most frequently post stuff but when i do podcasts particularly they'll go up on my website and if you're interested in like my publications and my cv and stuff there's sort of like a formal academic -y part of my website too so you can go and find that there perfect well it was um great chatting and hopefully maybe we can catch up again one day and speak on other areas around yeah, functional thanks. medicine this i really appreciate thank you so much thank you for listening to the metagenics clinical podcast find us on itunes and leave a review Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast, and sign up for our e-newsletter.